Welcome to Medicine the Truth, one of our four weekly fixing healthcare podcast series. I'm Jeremy Core, host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of an Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, continues to receive industry-wide praise. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Information on a broad range of medical topics can be found on his website, robertpearlmd.com. Robbie, listeners are enjoying this blend of the latest in medicine with ongoing updates on COVID-19. What's new these days? Jeremy, a milestone has been reached when it comes to providing medical care and insurance coverage to Americans over the age of 65. When individuals reach that age, they become eligible for Medicare, and they're asked to decide in which of two programs they want to be enrolled. The first option is traditional Medicare. That dates back to when it was first put in place in 1965 with the urging of then-President Lyndon Johnson. At that time, average life expectancy was less than than 70 years, and there was little that doctors could do to treat patients when they had heart attacks, strokes, or cancer, besides observation or relatively simple surgical procedures. As a result, the cost of medical care back then was low, around 5% of our nation's gross domestic product. Ironically, the initial legislation was first opposed by the medical profession, led by the AMA. It was seen as socialistic. Unrecognized at the time was how the cost of medicine would soar in the decades to come, with medical expenses now consuming 17% of GDP. A combination of extended longevity and million dollars a year on drugs and other very expensive procedures and machines have produced greater and greater cost pressure on the federal government that funds Medicare. In response to rising healthcare costs, Congress in 1997 implemented a second program. It's called Medicare Advantage, with the hope of both improving people's health and lowering costs by coordinating care and paying for it through capitation, meaning a set fee to the providers of care to provide all the medical treatment needed for a population of patients. According to the U.S. Congressional Budget Office, this little brother has surpassed the traditional Medicare option in popularity and now covers a greater percentage of people than the fee-for-service option, and it's projected to enroll 60% of individuals aged 65 and over by 2030. Have any studies been done comparing these two programs? Jeremy, there have been a huge number of comparisons made, and the conclusions fall into two divergent camps. On one hand, there are critics of Medicare Advantage who point to the higher cost per enrollee than in traditional Medicare. They focus on how the size of the payments are calculated. In Medicare Advantage, the government pays relative to the medical risk of the people enrolled. That measure is based not on how often enrollees come for care, but their underlying diseases, including diabetes, cancer, cardiovascular problems. And payment is made whether the problem requires intervention currently or not. The reason for that is that someone, let's say, who had a cancer treated in the past is more likely to develop another cancer or a recurrence of the first one compared to someone with no history of malignancy. And that needs to be recognized, if not 
doctors and hospitals will shun enrolling individuals with these types of pre-existing problems. In contrast to the FIFA service methodology, no dollars would be paid for these problems that did not require or were not undergoing constant medical attention. And often doctors wouldn't even pay any attention to the risks that these underlying conditions produce. And this is where the split in the road happens. Supporters of Medicare Advantage, they say that people they treat are at higher risk for needing medical care in the future, and that the program does a great job of prevention and management of chronic diseases. They say if the enrollees had been in traditional Medicare, the cost would have been dramatically higher. But those on the other side of the argument, they're not convinced. They believe that the Medicare Advantage program, usually provided through private insurance companies, simply game the payment system. Recently, a report was distributed that shed some light on the question. It found that among patients with one or more chronic diseases enrolled in Medicare Advantage versus traditional Medicare, that the ones in Medicare Advantage were more likely to identify as racial and ethnic minorities, 28% versus 13% for FIFA service, and to have become eligible for Medicare as a result of having a disability, 27% in Medicare Advantage versus 21.6% in traditional. And as such, this study lends credence to the idea that the enrollees in Medicare Advantage are at greater risk and that the dollars spent are justified. Furthermore, the report notes that Medicare Advantage beneficiaries required less hospital and ER visits, but they received far more doctor's office visits, implying greater outpatient attention, better management of chronic diseases, and earlier intervention for medical problems before they became severe and required an ED or hospital admission. As a result, Medicare beneficiaries with diabetes needed only $1,532 of healthcare treatment in Medicare Advantage compared to $2,204 for enrollees in traditional Medicare. And for those who had elevated blood lipids, major risk factor of heart attacks and strokes, they only required $1,276 in Medicare Advantage rather than $1,834 in fee-for-service Medicare. Medicare Advantage proponents conclude that Medicare Advantage is far superior, that the higher costs of the program reflect outpatient investments in prevention and avoidance of complications for chronic disease. Critics say the enrollees really aren't as sick as the doctors claim, and that the price comparisons just simply aren't apples to apples. Jeremy, we could spend the entire program talking about these two programs their pros and their cons, and the implication for all of American healthcare. But I suggest we save that for a future Diving Deep episode. What's another news story, Robbie? Jeremy, the FDA granted full approval to the drug Lakembi, an anti-amyloid monoclonal antibody for patients with early Alzheimer's disease. As you know, amyloid is a protein that accumulates in the brains of many individuals who are diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. As a result of the drug approval, Medicare is planning to cover 80% of the cost for this $26,500 a year medication. That's generous, but of course it leaves patients with thousands of dollars in co-payments. Moreover, the total cost of treatment, because that also includes doctor's office visits, ongoing monitoring, the requisite brain scans, along with the drug, in total, it's estimated to be close to $90,000 annually. 
It's currently recommended that patients be discontinued from receiving the drug once their Alzheimer's disease has become moderate rather than early stage. Prior to this action, the FDA had given accelerated approval to this Alzheimer's medication and to another Alzheimer's drug, but full approval, as in this case, is a major step forward for the manufacturer. It came after data showed a 20% lowering in cognitive and functional decline in patients taking the drug compared to placebo and a significant degree of clearing of the beta amyloid plaque seen in MRI studies of the brain. At the same time, 17% of study participants experienced bleeding into the brain with three deaths as a result. As a result, this so-called black box warning was required by the FDA as part of the approval process, and that notifies prescribing doctors of the elevated dangers. The slower cognitive and functional decline the patients experienced was calculated based on a measure called the clinical dementia rating. This is a scale that goes from zero to 18 with higher numbers indicating worse dementia. In the data submitted, the average starting score for patients entering into the trial was 3.2. At 18 months, those receiving the actual medication had declined, meaning the score increased by 1.21 points while in the placebo group, the worsening was by 1.66 points. It's a difference of 0.45 points. Now, different experts in the field have responded to this data with contrasting opinions. Some have seen it as an important breakthrough, opening the door to further advancement. But others have cautioned that although these numbers are statistically significant, that families are likely not to see much of a difference in the cognition of their loved one. And critics worry that the bleeding and brain swelling following administration of the medication will prove even more problematic in actual clinical practice than during these highly regulated, closely studied patients receiving the treatment as part of the approval process. In our last Medicine the Truth, we talked about the weight loss drugs. Many listeners asked for more information. What can you tell them? As you know, Jeremy, in our last Diving Deep episode, we explored the new glucagon-like peptide 1, or GLP-1 medications. These are similar to natural occurring proteins to the human body. The drugs were developed to treat diabetes, but they were shown in clinical trials to result in major weight reduction. Companies are now creating different variations in the design of the drugs, but the most recent ones, including more than just one peptide, in a single medication. As an example, a recent drug from Eli Lilly includes three key hormones. And in phase two clinical trials, overweight or obese participants without diabetes lost 24% of the body weight. That would bring someone, let's say, who's 5'5", with a weight of 200 pounds, down to 150 pounds. That could potentially be the recommended healthy weight. For patients with diabetes, the weight loss was less but it's still averaged 17%. So far, these drugs all need to be administered by injection, but multiple manufacturers are working to develop an effective pill. The challenge, as we talked about in the Diving Deep episode, it's the cost of this class of medications. And today that continues to exceed $10,000 per person per year. And remember, this is a drug that must be used for the rest of a person's life. Stopping these so-called forever drugs results in the person regaining most of their weight. So we're talking about highly effective medications, but we're also talking about a cost that is essentially unaffordable for 
payers, for patients, for the government. Jeremy, I know you've been concerned about our nation's obesity epidemic and the negative impact it has on chronic illnesses, illnesses that can produce heart attacks, strokes, and cancer. As a patient, how do you view the role of medications versus lifestyle management, which can include diet and exercise? How do you see our nation approaching this two-part choice for the future? I do see medication playing a key role, but I also feel as though the primary focus should be around lifestyle management. How many people, when they go to their doctor for their yearly physical, talk about wanting to do better and eating right and getting exercise, but never actually do it? Or the people who get a gym membership as part of their New Year's resolution, but stop using it after three weeks? I think if people had a resource, either through their primary care doctor or some other source to help hold them accountable, check up on them and provide ongoing lifestyle education, it would make a massive difference in combating the obesity epidemic we face as a nation. I think lifestyle management is key to fighting obesity. The question is, what is the government's role in helping to offer resources versus what is on each person's individual responsibility to manage their own lifestyle and lifestyle decisions? Like I said, in my opinion, in the ideal world, medication would be the last resort. All these medication updates are interesting, Robbie. What else is new in the drug world? Now, major story, Jeremy, is that Opel, the most commonly prescribed birth control pill in the United States, will now be available over the counter. It's expected to become available without prescription in early 2024. It differs from most other birth control pills by only containing a synthetic version of progesterone, not a combination of estrogen and progesterone. And by admitting estrogen, the slightly higher risk of blood clots, which are the most worrisome medical risk from birth control pills, is eliminated. The exact over-the-counter price hasn't yet been announced, and it remains unclear whether insurers who currently pay for birth control pills will reimburse women for this medication once the drug becomes available over-the-counter. In general, insurance companies don't pay for drugs that aren't prescribed. With this approval, the U.S. joins 100 other nations that currently allow the sale of contraceptive pills without a prescription. Of interest, there was a major debate prior to approval as to whether women could be relied on to figure out how to take this birth control pill without physician guidance. Given that this medication has been used for over half a century, and the instructions are available with the drug, the magnitude of this concern seems inappropriately left over from eras of the past. The decision to make the pill available without a prescription is supported by 75% of adult women. The pill is over 99% effective when used as directed, and it's 94% effective in current use. The most common reason why people become pregnant is from skipping days, and the most common reason that happens is that they run out of pills and they can't get to a doctor to get a new prescription quickly. As such, the over-the-counter approach should prove to be a positive solution, but that assumes that the price of the pills is affordable for the people seeking it. Let me ask you, Jeremy, in other countries, patients can obtain quite a number of medications, including antibiotics, without a doctor's prescription. As a patient, would you like this to be the practice in the U.S.? Or do you see eliminating the requirement to first get medical expertise as being problematic? Robbie, I'm torn on this one. On one hand, we don't want anything to become antibiotic resistant due to the overuse and misuse of antibiotics. 
On the other hand, I recently had strep throat and was prescribed antibiotics, but all the pharmacies were closed for the day, so I had to wait until the next day to get my antibiotics, even though I felt miserable. I was working from home and unable to go to the pharmacy until late in the afternoon that next day due to meetings. The convenience factors making these over-the-counter would be huge, but the long-term public health repercussions of making medications like antibiotics over-the-counter could be very problematic, which is my reasons for mixed feelings. Robbie, I keep hearing more and more doctors closing their offices and working for someone else. What's happening? Jeremy, the information you've heard, it's accurate. Over the past decade, the percentage of physicians working in their own private practices fell by 13% from 60% to under 50%, down to 47%. That's according to a survey from the AMA. The majority took a job working for a hospital, a health system. Among the doctors who sold their practice to a health system with private equity, it was to gain market clout when negotiating for higher rates from insurers. More than 70% of doctors are now employed by hospitals or corporate entities, and a growing percentage have sold all or a portion of their practice to private equity. The combination of reduced payments from Medicare, higher costs of running an office, and a growing administrative burden has made private practice difficult to maintain. The reality for doctors doesn't always match the hype. In fact, research published in Health Affairs has shown that following acquisition by hospitals, physician income actually goes down slightly, while the cost to patients rises significantly, averaging 5% higher cost for patients for primary care and 9% higher for patients for specialty services. I think what you're seeing is that financial success in healthcare today it has actually little to do with quality, but instead it reflects market control and the ability of providers to raise prices. It's been well-documented for hospitals and now it's becoming the norm for doctors. That's why I'm increasingly pessimistic that transformation in healthcare is going to come from the current incumbents in medicine, be they doctors, hospitals, or insurance companies. Robbie, I know the opioid epidemic is taking more lives each year, but that patients are worried they will be in pain as recommendations change. Is there any new information on this topic? You are correct, Jeremy, that opioid deaths now exceed 100,000 individuals a year. The reasons are complex. They tie back to pharmaceutical companies that misled clinicians about the relative risks and benefits of these powerful drugs. A recent article in The Lancet took a scientific look at the efficacy of pain pills specific to back pain. The conclusion was that in the short run, these narcotics, they don't relieve low back or neck pain any better than non-addicting treatments. And in the long run, they produce results that are poorer in outcomes. Unexpectedly, one year after the initial episode, patients who received opioids for back and neck pain not only had more pain than those who didn't, but they also were at higher risk for opioid misuse. There's a growing evidence that many individuals become dependent on narcotics, not from the pain caused by the medical problem, but from the pain that's caused by withdrawal after prolonged use. As such, they continue to rely and take opioids, not for the back pain itself, but to avoid the discomfort that comes from stopping an addictive medication. And that produces a problematic, vicious cycle of needing ever higher doses and risking overdose and death. As always, I'm interested in any updates on medical treatment relative to kids. What's new? The biggest news is that newborns can now be protected from the lethal respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, 
that results in 60,000 to 80,000 babies each year being hospitalized. And it takes the lives of 300 children under the age of five annually. The new drug, Bayfortis, that we mentioned in a previous episode, has now been approved by the FDA. It protects kids who become infected from developing pneumonia and difficulty breathing. It will be available in time for this upcoming RSV season. Unlike a vaccine, the medication will directly provide babies with the antibodies they need to fight the infection before their bodies have the ability to generate these powerful proteins it sells. We keep hearing about rising healthcare costs and usually talk about hospitals and drug companies. What about doctors? Jeremy, physician incomes on a percentage basis have risen slower than revenue for hospitals and drug companies. Moreover, the differences will grow larger next year on the proposed updates for Medicare. For patients covered by traditional Medicare, doctors get paid by a combination of two factors. First, there's a pay schedule for the various things that physicians do in their office, as well as in other outpatient locations. That schedule produces a relative value number, which reflects the relative complexity and time required to do the particular evaluation or treatment. Then there's a conversion factor, which is multiplied by the relative value number to produce the dollar figure that doctors will be paid by the government. According to the newly released Medicare proposal, the conversion factor will be decreased in 2024 by 3.34%. With an expected increase in the work doctors do, the net impact of the lower unit reimbursement times more units will still be a decrease in payment per physician of 1.25%. And this will happen in the context of inflation with higher office expenses for most physicians. The exact impact, of course, will vary by specialty, but it's estimated that primary care doctors will do somewhat better than specialists. In contrast, outpatient care provided through hospitals, that's scheduled to rise 2.8%, assuming these proposed rate changes are finalized later this year. Rabbi, we've been talking about vaccines since the start of this podcast. With the fall on the horizon, what's the current consensus? As you know, Jeremy, this fall will be an interesting moment in time. On one hand, we now have the ability to protect people through vaccination for the most worrisome viral infections. And on the other hand, we're experiencing one of the most anti-vaccination environments in history. People will be encouraged to get protected from severe illness from the flu, COVID, and RSV. With, of course, minor variations in the specific recommendations based on their age and health status. You may recall that a year ago, there was the so-called triplodemic from the combination of these three potentially lethal infections. And they really threatened immunocompromised patients. They overran hospitals. And they led to cancellation of elected procedures from a lack of beds and staff. Hopefully this year we could avoid a repeat. The details aren't finalized when it comes to these vaccinations. Each of them has a slightly different set of issues. When it comes to the flu, we worry about the viral makeup changes that significantly happen each year, and we'll need to wait to see if researchers hit on the right combination of strains that will maximize the efficacy of the vaccine itself. For COVID, regulators have already recommended that they base their mRNA vaccines on the more recent XBB subvariant of Omicron, rather than using the original genetic sequence. The changeover should be smooth, but health experts will be keeping a watchful eye. And when it comes to RSV, vaccination is now recommended for people over the age of 60, but it's still being debated 
if that recommendation should be implemented for everyone or only for individuals at higher risk from underlying disease, especially heart and lung problems. And when it comes to insurance coverage, it's not certain what companies will do relative to payment. You may remember from a Diving Deep episode that when it comes to COVID, that with the end of the emergency plan, insurers will now have to either bear the cost or pass it on to patients rather than the total cost of vaccination being funded through the U.S. government. When I put the pieces together, Jeremy, I fear that chaos will exceed reason and that once again, Americans will die unnecessarily from the confusion. The one hopeful part is that all the vaccines can be administered at the same time. So people who come for one can leave with protection against at least two, assuming they fulfill the criteria set by the CDC, the details of which should be released within a month or two. Robbie, a few weeks ago, the world experienced its hottest day in history. A listener wanted to know, what are the medical implications of global warming? We've seen numbers that were unimaginable when it comes to climate, even a few years ago. Death Valley has seen temperatures around 130 degrees. Phoenix experienced 19 consecutive days of temperatures above 110 degrees. A township in China reported a temperature of 126 degrees at the time that Envoy John Kerry arrived in Beijing to restart stalled talks on climate change between the world's two largest emitters of carbon dioxide. At the same time, Vermont experienced massive floods in Canada has had uncontrolled wildfires with smoke blanketing much of the Midwest and East Coast. The ocean in Florida has exceeded 100 degrees, and there have been hundreds of deaths as a result of these various environmental disasters. There's scientific debate about how high a temperature needs to go to exceed the body's ability to auto-regulate. The thinking in the past was that the maximum that our bodies could handle was 95 degrees at 100% humidity. But research from Penn State has lowered that danger point to where scientists believe it may be as low as 87 degrees at 100% humidity, even for young, healthy individuals. Elderly individuals and those with medical problems, they become at risk to die at much lower temperatures. When our bodies become too hot, we experience heat illness. That shuts down and disables multiple organ systems in our body. That can result in heart attacks, kidney failure, and loss of consciousness. The way our bodies shed heat is through a combination of sweating and vascular constriction in our core and simultaneous vasodilatation in our extremities. That's why staying hydrated is so important. Because with vasodilatation, there can be insufficient fluid in our blood vessels to maintain the requisite blood volume and blood pressure. Moreover, these high heat levels, they're impacting a range of animals. They're increasing the prevalence and severity of many medical problems. One example is a growing incidence of tick-borne diseases, and the problem is affecting an expanding number of geographies. Doctors and hospitals are having to treat a growing number of patients with hypothermia. And they're even seeing kids with burns to the extremities from playing on metal slides and bars in extremely high temperature days. This is a problem that is getting worse, and I don't see that it's going to get better anytime soon. I'd like to return to the question of the cost of healthcare. What's been the impact of rising costs on patients? Jeremy Pugh did a study of U.S. adults in June. 
It found that among 5,000 people surveyed, the top issues of concern were inflation at 65%, healthcare affordability at 64%, and partisan acrimony at 62%. The numbers on the lack of affordability, they were 9% higher from the previous year. Of interest, when the concerns of the report were separated by political affiliation, there was huge variation. Inflation was at the top for Republicans, 77%, but gun violence was number one among Democrats at 81%, with inflation in the number two position at 73%. Climate change, like gun violence, varied by political affiliation, with Democrats placing it high at 64%, but only 14% of Republicans seeing it as a big problem in the country. What's clear is that people, regardless of how they vote, they're becoming increasingly worried about their ability to afford medical care. Finances are universal. In contrast, social issues remain a divisive challenge for our country. So let me ask you, Jeremy, as an historian and political observer, how do you make sense of these disparate views of people? As a physician and scientist, it baffles me that people can't sit down, look at data, and reach a consensus. What are your thoughts? Robbie, I think the reasons for the issues we are divided on as a nation is as simple as social issues impact different communities in different ways. For example, in inner cities where gun violence is much more prominent than in rural communities, gun violence is going to be a much higher priority. In rural communities where people tend to be more conservative, people are going to be more passionate about the issues that directly impact them. A lot of the divide also has to do with what news sources people consume. For more liberal people who watch MSNBC and read the New York Times, they're going to care a lot more about the issues covered in those sources, much like how those on the right who watch Fox News and read the New York Post are going to care more about the issues they cover. Inflation, the rising costs of groceries and housing, the increasing costs of health care and other issues that have a massive impact on all but the wealthiest of Americans are universal concerns for everyone. Well, as a nation, we may be divided on a wide variety of social issues. I think that when you look at the issues such as the increasing cost of health care that almost everyone agrees is a massive problem, it should drive home the importance of them to our elected officials, regardless of party, and show them that they need to reach across the aisle and work together to make a positive difference for all Americans. Robbie, a listener wanted to know the difference between a generic and a biosimilar. In general, there are two classes of drugs, small molecule and biologicals. The small molecule medications have a specific chemical structure that can be easily replicated exactly as in the original medication. In contrast, the biologicals are highly complex substances, hundreds of times larger in chemical makeup, and they can't be replicated exactly. When patents run out on a small molecule drug, generic drug companies can use the chemical formula to manufacture and sell an exact duplicate of the medication, but at a much lower cost than the original company had sold it for. This identical compound is what we mean by a generic. In contrast, when a patent ends for biological, companies have no choice but to bring to market drugs that are very similar, but not exactly the same. Since unlike with small molecules, these complex medications can't be made identical. And as such, in order to get FDA approval, the manufacturers must prove that the drug functions similarly with equal efficacy to the one on the market. And that's why we call them biosimilars. Recently, several biosimilars to the drug Umira, medication for rheumatoid arthritis, were introduced. 
Humira is one of the most expensive drugs, and it generated $21.2 billion in revenue for the manufacturer. The new biosimilars promise to have a dramatically lower price tag. But the listener's question touches on another issue, one that's actually being debated in Congress right now. And that's the role of the pharmacy benefits managers, or PBMs. They sit between a drug manufacturer who wants to sell the drug and the insurer who's expected to pay for it. The PBMs determine what drugs will be included on an insurer's formulary and the price that will be charged. As such, even though a biosimilar may cost much less than the original medication, unless that PBM includes it on the formulary, patients can be stuck with having to pay much higher out-of-pocket expenses for the original medication. As you might imagine, drug manufacturers often provide financial incentives to PBMs to do exactly that. There's a general consensus that PBM managers are working as much in their own interest as that of the patient or the insurer. We'll have to see whether the, the Congress is actually capable of taking action to rein in the egregious practices. Robbie, we haven't had a good news segment in a while. What's an uplifting story for our listeners? Jeremy, although it won't impact the United States very much, at least, there's a major breakthrough happening when it comes to malaria. What most listeners may not realize is that 247 million people worldwide become infected each year with malaria, and that malaria kills half a million children under the age of five annually, with over 100,000 adults dying. In addition, malaria is one of Africa's deadliest diseases. Malaria is caused by a microscopic protozoan of the genus Plasmodium. When a female Anopheles mosquito bites an infected human, the mosquito becomes infected, and it's then capable of transmitting the disease producing protozoan to a person when it bites the uninfected individual. But now we have a vaccine against malaria, which is about to be administered to 18 million people in a dozen countries across Africa, beginning before the end of the year. It'll be included as part of each nation's routine immunization programs. Although the vaccine was available a couple of years ago, the COVID-19 pandemic made it difficult to organize the distribution and administration of the medication. The possibility of preventing hundreds of thousands of deaths from this lethal disease Jeremy, that's not just good news. That's great news. Robbie, any final thoughts? Jeremy, I'm impressed at how fast the world of AI is progressing. Two of the world's largest technology companies, Google and Microsoft, they're racing each other to develop applications that clinicians can use to make diagnoses and treat patients. Google's medical chat box is called MedPalm2. It already is excellent at making not just straightforward diagnoses, but complex ones as well. And Microsoft has worked with OpenAI to expand the data sets included in the training of the application so that both doctors and patients can use it to answer medical questions, analyze information, and summarize electronic healthcare records. Microsoft recently completed a deal to have its generative AI embedded in the electronic healthcare records sold by Epic, which is the nation's largest electronic health record company. This tool will allow doctors to create AI-written messages for patients. Both companies are working to develop a virtual assistant, one that's capable of reliably answering medical questions for patients without physician participation. 
As problematic as that might sound to listeners, in a pilot project, doctors reviewed the answers provided by BedPalm 2 to responses from physicians, and in eight out of nine categories, they said the AI response was superior. It's amazing to me that ChatGPT was first released only eight months ago, and how much more powerful it has become today. You know, Jeremy, I'm amused when clinicians tell me that all the things this technology will never be able to do. It's like looking at a newborn and assuming that it will never walk, talk, or drive a car because it can't in the first few months of life. The pace of maturation for generative AI, it's likely to be just as rapid or even faster than what happens in the amazing first few years of human life. I can guarantee that a decade from now, people will wonder, how did we ever get by without it? Just as they do today for their smartphone. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, FixingHealthCarePodcast.com, and on all apps, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like this show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare, and have a great day.